and welcome. Once again, my name is Sue Langley and welcome to another of our Learn With Sue Walk and Talk podcasts. And in our episode today, we have the first part of our latest expert in conversation session with the fabulous Marco Acaboni. And I have been wanting to speak to Marco for a long time. He is a leader in the area of mirror neurons and empathy. And it has been wonderful uh, for me to have this conversation and an honor to delve deeper into this space with an absolute leader in this field. And I've been inspired ever since I learned about mirror neurons many years ago to uh, keep up to date with this research and having a conversation with Marco was an absolute pinnacle uh, in understanding how the brain works and more importantly what we can do with this interesting topic and what the research is telling us. So please join me for a wonderful brain-based conversation with the fabulous Marco Acaboni. So welcome to our next live Learn With Sue in conversation with the fabulous Marco Ecoboni, who I am really excited to introduce. And uh, apologies for my very unsexy voice today, um, but I have been looking forward to this session for uh, all year. Uh, because I met Marco many years ago, probably he can't, he can't remember that. It was the first person ever that when they come off stage, I have felt compelled to go and say hello. I never do that. I don't have heroes. I don't have people I aspire to or anything, and I don't put posters of people on my wall. Um, but Marco was the only one after his presentation. I thought I have to just go, and I wanted to give you a hug. <laughs> so um, Marco is known for uh, many things um, as far as uh, research, very prolific research. But some of you may know of Marco from... Uh, the mirror neuron research and as Marco has already told us he's UCLA brain mapping center um, and a neuroscientist and an expert in all things uh, that we're going to be talking about today about how the brain works. So Marco welcome to our live Learn with Sue session for our fabulous people that are on live and also the people for recording and thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's a pleasure to be here thanks for inviting me. You're very welcome. So I thought it might be useful to think about, I'm sure you've asked, been asked many of these questions before. Um, I would like to ask you about the actual uh, genesis of uh, mirror neuron research, because I always love the urban legend that it was one of the Italian neuroscientists that came in licking a gelati and that was how they established that. And I like that because it's Italy and it's gelati. So tell us the real truth behind the genesis of the mirror neuron research. It's a great way to start because at some point I was collaborating with the, with the Parma group, the people in Parma, Italy, in which they, the lab in which they discovered mirror cells. And then I started doing work myself and the research was so popular. I thought it was also important to kind of write for general readers the whole story about millennials because we've been told for centuries that we are kind of selfish beings and the story that came out from the neuroscience lab about millennials that we're actually wired for empathy uh, and for social connection. So I thought it was very important to really write a book for general readers, not neuroscientists, that would understand uh, the discovery, the implications, even the philosophical implications of it. Um, and so I had to also describe how this stuff was discovered. <laughs> and at some point, I got to the, I, just, you know, I wrote 
Samir Turdak demişler. E nereye getirdiği bir telepoyunda, okey, ma'am, I'm trying to describe how they found out about it. And I knew about the urban legends. I heard about at least two. One is the gelato, which is, you know, also my favorite one. <laughs> <laughs> and the other one is someone breaking a peanut and the monkey uh, <laughs> does the same, fires with... Uh, and I thought, okay, but which one of these two is true? So I email all my friends back in Parma and I say, right, guys, I'm writing a book about the discovery and I know about these two stories, but which one is true? And I say, no, they're both urban <laughs> legends. <laughs> but they're so good. <laughs> and so I said, we don't understand how this stuff uh, came about. And I thought, well, I think it's people, it's much easier to really come up with a story that captures the discovery mm. and to really tell you the truth, which is much more boring. <laughs> <laughs> the real truth is that, so I told him, you know, and then how did you find out? Well, you know, we have this gradual um, sort of uh, awareness that uh, something weird was going on in the world. Mm. When, you, when there's something you don't expect, you make yourself blind to it. Yeah. You don't even perceive it, even if it's under your nose. Yeah. Uh, they kept seeing these things and they started having this gradual understanding that maybe there was something like neurons going on, um, but they were still in disbelief. They, they went back to their lab notes. They found lab notes in which they were saying, this very weird response for this neuron. When they do certain things, the neuron fires. Is it just coincidental? And so they became gradually aware, and the more they became aware, the more aware they were becoming, because it's like a virtual circle. Now you start looking at things, and you start doing experiments to see whether your intuition is actually correct or not. Yeah. But the gelato story is a great story, but it's totally fake. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I so wish it was true. <laughs> So for people listening on here, they may have read something about mirror neurons. And for those of you who haven't, uh, Marco's book is fabulous. I've read it a few times. In fact, I found a, um, uh, I've got two bookmarks sitting in it um, from previous readings. So um, can you just explain to everybody um, exactly what mirror neurons are? Because I know that there's things, mirror neurons that were perhaps more complex than we already thought because they don't abide by standard rules if they only do one thing. They seem to sort of fire with many things. Yeah. But then yeah. you've also got canon canonical neurons. Canonical neurons. Those are different kinds of neurons. They're also interesting. So actually, so let me tell you the whole story. So this group of monkey neurophysiologists were using single cell recordings in a part of the brain that controls our grasping actions. Yeah. Grasping is something we do all the time. You know, mm. you, gra you just grasp your... <laughs> 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 and they were really interested in the motor aspect of grasping. And then we found very interesting uh, properties in these cells, even just for the motor properties of these cells. Because they found, for instance, some of these cells uh, with fire for say, say I'm, I'm grabbing a banana and the monkey grabs the banana. Some cells will fire for the monkey grabs the, the banana with the right hand, with the left hand, and even with the mouth. So clearly these three actions have no, there's no muscle in common between these three actions. And yet the same cell in this part of the brain fires. And so the idea they started 
developing is that while some of these cells, they don't really care about the specific motor plan, but they really care about the intention, the goal of the action, which is grabbing a banana. Yep. Um, then eventually they found out that some of these cells also fire when the monkey's not making any grasping, but see the monkey's just seeing something graspable. That's the canonical view. Ah, okay. When I just see that it is graspable. Exactly. So we tend to grasp things in two ways. Uh, let me uh, get some objects around me. We don't grasp with the with the thumb and with the thumb and with the index fingers, more objects. That's called precision grip. Yeah. Or we grasp with our whole hand. That's called whole hand preemption. So there are these two main type of grasping neurons in this part of the brain, of the monkey, and also neurons. Uh, and uh, it turns out that what they found was that sometimes the monkey was just simply watching a graspable object. And that same cell that fires when the monkey grasps that object, even if the monkey is not grasping at all, it's still firing. Mm. So that means that those cells are also coding the affordance of the object. How yeah. can I grab that thing? So that's something that they, and then so they become more and more aware of the notion that these cells are very complex cells. They're not just motor cells, they're also sensory cells that respond to visual stimulation, like seeing an object. And then they found out about mirror neurons. And mirror neurons too, they, they have a, it's a, it's a population of cells. And some cells, some that do certain things, some others do more complex things. So the simplest thing is that, again, I say grasp this thing, this way, even just from, from the top, I grasp this thing this way, when I, the cell fires when I do it, and the cell fires when I see you do it. Yes. So that's it, it's called strictly congruent mirror neuron. So then the mirror neuron are more like broadly congruent, they seem to be actually firing for, a for, a, for an action from a rhetoric standpoint, and from a visual standpoint for any action that achieves the same goal. Yeah. Okay, so thinking about that for a moment, and I'm going to go into what it means for us in a moment. But um, if we think about mirror neurons, it seems, therefore, it's linked to the, the motor cortex, as in there is the physical act that there is also then the area of intention that um, sort of mentalizing system where it helps me understand what you are likely to be doing. But yeah. it also seems to therefore be linked to empathy so how I understand what you are doing and, and how I can relate to what you are doing. So what's your thinking about the importance of these mirror neurons and what they do for us as humans? Oh, I think they're very important because I spent like 20 years of my life doing research. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a, there's a lovely question on the chat. We should probably, before we move to that, do these canonical neurons fire at night during sleep? when people might be dreaming about, say, grasping. It's such a lovely question. Uh, the answer is that we don't know, in the sense that we don't do experiments when people are sleeping and they can report things. Um, so it's hard to say, but I would say that most likely the question itself captures some aspect of what these mirror neurons do, which is the idea of mental representation. I'm thinking that even just imagery most likely will activate these neurons. If I'm thinking about grasping, most likely some of my mirror cells will, will uh, get activated. And we know that in terms of brain systems, when I think about a motor action, uh, if I think about playing tennis, which is one thing I do a lot, <laughs> I also think about it a lot, then my motor cortex activates. So the same 
part of the brain that I use when I actually do that thing. Yeah. Uh, I'm also activating it when I'm imagining doing these things. And sleeping is, in a way, a weird form of imagination. Um, so, yeah, uh, we don't know. Uh, my, I don't know who asked the question, Chris. Chris. Um, sorry, I, will not, I don't have a decisive answer, but I would say my intuition would be probably yes, at least some of them. Um, now, to go back to your question, yeah, so when millennials get discovered, first of all, it was such an, such an unexpected discovery. Mm-hmm. No one expected to find these visual sensory properties in a part of the brain that if you make a lesion, the animal becomes paralytic, becomes an animal with a motor deficit. Uh, so how do you make sense of it? So one way of making sense of it is the notion that, well, if I see you grasping a cup for tea, as you're doing now with honey, <laughs> and the same grasping cell that I would use to, to grasp that cup of tea activates in my own brain. For me, it's very easy to understand what you intend to do. Yeah. I don't have to conjecture much about what is your mental state, what are your intentions. I'm basically revoking into my own brain the same stuff that it goes on in your brain to achieve your own intention. Yeah. So it's a way of really getting into the minds of others. And so that's a way of empathizing. But as you mentioned, we have also other ways of empathizing, which are more like cognitive empathy. So, so the mirroring would be more like affected emotional empathy. I get what you're thinking, what you're feeling in a very intuitive and reflexive way. I don't have to think much about it. But I can actually get into your mental state using a more cognitive stance, thinking about well, what Susie is doing now, she's handling this thing, she's thinking about, you know, controlling how the chat goes and her throat is not doing that well. So I'm trying to also get into your mind in a way that is more cognitive. Yes. And uh, we know that in terms of brain systems, actually emotional empathy systems and mostly correspond to the mirror areas and other regions of the brain that have uh, emotional balance. Um, and the areas that are important for more mentalizing, theory of mind, mind reading, are somewhat different. Yeah. And so one of the one of the things that I had to deal with for many, many years was so making the point that you know these mirror cells are very important for empathy, is that well, but you know, there are two ways of empathizing. You can have the emotional contagion, but that's short short-lived. Uh, but what about, you know, if you want to do something that is more pro-social, then you may want to use more mind reading, mentalizing, which makes a lot of sense. Mm. And we have actually evidence that these two things are actually somewhat different. But on the end, because I'm a neuroscientist that believes in evolution and in the fact that you actually build one thing on top of another, I was thinking, I think that from an evolutionary standpoint, it makes more sense that emotional contagion, this emotional empathy sort of thing, came online from an evolutionary standpoint earlier, there's plenty of evidence in the animal kingdom, and the more cognitive empathy came online a little later. But it's very possible that these two things are actually talking to each other all the time. And indeed, we've done a series of studies in the last five years in which really show that this cognitive and emotional empathy it's like, you know, when you, see, when you look up in the sky and you look at the, the position of the, the sun in the sky and then you check the, 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 the sun in the sky two hours later, it seems that the, the sun moved. 
But it's actually the earth that moved around the sun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you, I mean, sometimes you have to really be careful because things that they, they may not be the way they appear. Yes. So now we have actually a good um, set of data that show that emotional and cognitive empathy systems in the brain for emotional and cognitive empathy are talking to each other all the time. So picking up on that, and I'm going to come to Wei Ying's question as well, is um, when we, um, so I, for the last 20 years, I've used the Mesquite um, Mass Alavi Caruso Emotional Intelligence Test, and they specifically talk about using emotions, which is the um, affective, the emotional empathy, where I feel what you feel. Um, yeah. And then the cognitive empathy is understanding emotions where I get what you feel. And yeah. sometimes to your point, yeah, I can read 100 books on emotions and I can absolutely have cognitive empathy. But you might then I might come across as cold if you're experiencing an emotion and you don't feel that I feel what you feel. Um, yeah. So Wei Ying's question is, do mirror neurons then play a significant role in co-regulation? So in relationships of when we're with other people? I would say probably yes. I mean, first of all, Initially, there was this idea that there was this sort of division of labor between emotional and cognitive empathy. And we started doing experiments in the lab. So, and now I'll tell you about, I, mean, I like to talk about my experiments because at the end of the day, I'm an experimentalist. But I mean, the experiments really give you some sense of how things work. So, one of the is that, well, you know, you have emotional empathy, you have cognitive empathy. Let's see if the two things, in a way, are related to each other. We did an experiment in which we had people in the scanner. They were seeing people in pain. They were seeing and imitating facial emotional expression. We were recording brain activity doing all these mirroring tasks, all these emotional empathy tasks. Then we put them outside the scanner, and seemingly they're doing totally different things. Now they're playing an economic game in which it's basically charity. They're playing with profile that correspond to real people in LA. And they're given 24 times, $10 for 24 times. They play with, with the profile. They're told, you can keep all the money or you can share some of this money with the stranger. And if you do that, then the stranger will get the money in the mail. We also we make them play with two kinds of profile. People that make little money and people that make a lot of money. We do that on purpose because we want to show that when they make decisions, they are thinking. Now, if you're playing with people and make, if you're given 10 bucks by this crazy scientist and you're willing to share some of this money with this stranger, you're more willing to do that with people that are in need of money. So people that make little money, but much less with people that make a lot of money. And that's exactly what they do. Our participants do exactly that. They show that they're thinking, they show a very sort of cognitive empathy, which they're thinking, this guy lives in LA, makes $25,000 a year. It's really a lot of money. I'm going to have this crazy scientist is giving me 10 bucks. I'm going to share, I'm going to split these 10 bucks, five for me and five for this stranger. Okay, so that's really cognitive empathy. They're really thinking. Now, the question is, the experimental question is, can we predict the generosity of our participants just by looking at their brain activity when they're seeing someone in pain, when they're doing emotional empathy tasks. And of course, the answer is yes, otherwise I wouldn't be telling you the story. <laughs> <laughs> but that's already suggested us, wait a minute, now we have really strong evidence that emotional empathy and cognitive empathy are not two separate things in the brain, but maybe two sides of a single coin. Mm. Then we thought, okay, but correlation is not causation. 
can we actually show more causal evidence in support of the notion that these two things are really talking to each other? So because we're able to sort of uh, make this correlation between reactivity and generosity, then we actually found out that some of these cognitive regions that were showing this inverse correlation. So I'm, I'm seeing you in pain, I'm in the scanner, I see you're in pain, my brain lights up. Some brain regions are the emotional brain regions, some others are the current brain regions. They're most like trying to control my emotional response. Yep, the regulation piece, yeah. Then I actually, what the scientist shows that is that my prefrontal cortex, the more active it is when I see you in pain, the less generous I am. So there's an inverse correlation. The yeah. more active my prefrontal goes, goes up when, you, when I see you in pain, the less money I give away. Yeah. Okay, so can we actually use brain stimulation to knock down these brain regions and make people more generous? Yeah. And we do that. We publish a study. So yeah, we so show that there is... <laughs> so we show that indeed we actually can make people more generous by just you know, using brain stimulation in those regions. So that's causal evidence that indeed my brain response to you in pain in the scanner predicts generosity in the economic game in a causal way. Yeah. So picking up on that, Marco, and, I, and for everybody listening, we will put the, um, the recent papers on There's the line. <laughs> <laughs> but thinking about that then, if we know you can do it by brain stimulation, you can make me more generous, if you like, from stimulating parts of my brain. Can, yeah. you, can I make myself more generous by somehow stimulating that part of my brain? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think that brain stimulation is, is dramatic we can actually show an effect very, fairly quickly um, with the stimulus for like 40, 40 seconds and we totally, totally knock down a brain region for about an hour and we basically change behavior. That's dramatic. But I think you, should, you can change behavior. I mean, cognitive behavioral therapy is very effective in changing behavior. Uh, other kinds of things can be effective in changing behavior. So yeah, you can actually make yourself more generous just by convincing yourself that you have to be more generous. <laughs> yeah, because to Chris's point, does it mean that generosity is influenced more by emotion than overthinking? So it's almost what I'm hearing is if I overthink it cognitively, I stop myself perhaps being as generous rather than if I just feel what you feel and give. Right, exactly. So I think the way you think about it is that there's a continuous interplay between the systems for emotional and the systems for cognitive empathy. And a healthy interplay is what makes you a healthy person. And there's a little bit too much. When I published the book, I got so many emails from people saying, you know what, I recognize myself so much in your book. At the end of the day, I'm drained because I empathize too much. Yes. And that's a little too much too. I mean, you want to, especially if you want to be pro-social and help other people, you can't be overwhelmed by emotions because otherwise it's too much. You want to have the, the right emotional response, but also a good, regulation and control so that actually you are pro-social and you do something that is proactive for the other person. So I think that really it's the interplay between the two of them. And that's why when we started doing this, also these brain imaging studies in which we look at the brain arrest, the participants are doing nothing. They're in yes. this kind of doing nothing. And then we use machine learning to look at the wiring between the areas of cognitive and emotional empathy and to see whether we can predict how empathic they are in real, in real life. We're actually finding answers that are positive answers, which is I mean, amazing. Um, and it tells us that we can actually also intervene on this wiring 
and make people more empathic, more pro-social. Yeah. It's that's really, yeah, it's interesting that's really that. because when you when you look at the emotional intelligence test that I mentioned, the using emotions, if people are really high on sensations, it's when they feel what other people feel. So literally, as soon as they see somebody, they feel it themselves. And to your right. point, that can get quite overwhelming if you're watching the news and you're taking all of that on. Oh, um, yeah. You know, when you go to movies, if you've got a particularly good actor or actress, then you you end up crying or laughing because you're feeling what someone feels. So yeah, there's yeah. huge benefits for it, but you're right. It probably, we need to make sure we, we don't just take on all of those emotions of other people and then get overwhelmed ourselves. Exactly. I think that's an important thing to remember because, again, it's uh, to have a good regulation and control. And again, the question about do millennials play regulation? I think that they do in the sense that it's really the interactions between systems for control and systems more for emotional empathy that are that makes you a healthy, empathic, and prosocial individual at the same time. Thank you so much for listening to this first part of our discussion with Marco Caboni as part of our Lemasu Walk and Talk podcast. If you would like to hear the rest of this conversation or you're interested in more fabulous experts, invitations to live sessions on various topics and our live learning events, our courses, our research reviews and much, much more, please check us out at lomasu.com.au and consider becoming a member of our global learning community, which is where we support each other to be the best we can be. Thank you so much, everybody, and see you on the next Walk and Talk.